1: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. We're still trying to understand exactly what happened on Election Day. And for that, we'll speak with Nation columnist Gary Young. He spent a month in Muncie talking to people in a middle-American Rust Belt city about the election. We'll get his final report later in this hour. Also, Trump's attack on immigrants, especially Muslims, are big news. But we have other news about grassroots programs working to resettle Muslim immigrants in different places around the United States. Michelle Chen has that story. But first, how to stop Trump. For that, we turn to David Cole, He's legal affairs correspondent for the nation and the new national legal director of the ACLU, where he's overseeing the work of the organization's nearly 300 lawyers and its Supreme Court cases. He also teaches at Georgetown University Law Center, and his most recent book is Engines of Liberty, The Power of Citizen Activists to Make Constitutional Law. Hi, David. Welcome back. Hi, John. Always good to be here. So when do you start with the ACLU?
2: I start on January 9th. I figured I needed about 10 days to get prepared for the Trump administration. (laughs)
1: Okay, good. Well, my nightmare Trump scenario starts with another serious terrorist attack on American soil. I suspect you have thought about this, too. Trump would have Republican majorities in the House and the Senate, assuming this happens in his first two years, probably the Supreme Court, too. What do you think
2: he might do? Well, you know, predicting what Trump will do is, uh, is dangerous uh, business. Uh, uh, but I think, you know, the people that he has selected thus far uh, for, uh, for the CIA, for um, national security, for the Justice Department, lead us to be, uh, I think, very concerned. So I think we're likely to see a, a repetition of the kinds of things uh, that George Bush and Dick Cheney did, uh, in 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 part because the people he has appointed for national security posts uh, are the people who have supported those things, even after they were declared illegal or uh, rejected, uh, or or deemed to be uh, ineffective.
1: You know, George Bush and Dick Cheney in two thousand two did have a Republican House, a Republican Senate, and a Republican majority on the court. So the parallels are striking. I think people forget how deep into Republican control we were in 2002. Remind us, what were the the low points of of that era?
2: Well, I know we only have a few minutes, so that could be difficult. (laughs) Right. Authorizing the disappearance of uh, terror suspects into CIA secret prisons— authorizing that they be tortured there, authorizing the abduction of individuals in foreign countries, and then delivering them to countries like uh, Syria and Jordan and Morocco, who we had long criticized for torturing uh, suspects so that they could torture them for us, authorizing warrantless wiretapping of American uh, citizens, holding people at Guantanamo without any kind of hearing, without any kind of opportunity to defend themselves uh, and subjecting them to uh, cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. I mean, it, you know, the list goes on, asserting that the president as commander in chief can exercise authority in in direct contravention of statutes that Congress passes to limit that authority.
1: But as you remind us in your new piece at the New York Review website, these policies did not go unchallenged. In fact, the challenges were quite vigorous and actually fairly successful. Remind us about that history.
2: Right. So, well, if you fast forward to 2009, when President Bush leaves office, by that time, he had really curtailed uh, virtually all of his most controversial uh, national security policies. So Uh, He had released over 500 people from Guantanamo. They were all uh, being given hearings and judicial review at that point. Uh, He had stopped the torture uh, program. He had taken all of the suspects out of the secret prisons that the CIA was running in Eastern Europe and other uh, parts of, of the world. He had placed the uh, warrantless wiretapping program under the supervision of a court, so it was now subject to warrant review. And he had stopped Extraordinary Rendition, the program in which we uh, sent people to other countries so they could torture them for us. And that's we, we sometimes lose sight of how remarkable that uh, curtailment is, given our history, uh, in which presidents have been free to do more or less what they deem uh, whatever they deem necessary in times of crisis, and neither Congress nor the court nor the American people have stood up to them. Uh, but this time around, uh, that is after 9-11, uh, the American people did stand up to them uh, in, in significant part through civil society organizations like the ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Rights and Human Rights First and Human Rights Watch uh, and engaged in a, a range of strategies that uh, ultimately uh, forced Bush and Cheney to curtail those measures in significant part, notwithstanding, as you point out, uh, that they had a, a friendly Supreme Court, a friendly Congress, uh, and they had a broad popular support, at least initially.
1: And these weren't just one-time decisions that Bush made. There are now rules and precedents that should have the effect of reigning in Trump as a result of all of this citizen legal action and these these uh, civil liberties groups. Remind us of what the new legal limits are on possible abuses and what the precedents right. are.
2: Right. So, So, for example, the Supreme Court really very clearly rejected this notion that the president as commander in chief is above the law and can't be constrained by the other branches. They ruled against the president four times on behalf of enemy combatants uh, in the quote unquote war on terror. Those decisions established that the Geneva Conventions must apply to those who we are fighting against. Bush had said they didn't. They established that people at Guantanamo have the right to come into a U.S. federal court and challenge the legality of their detention. They established the proposition that if if the uh, government seeks to use military authority to detain an American citizen, uh, he has uh, due process rights to uh, a fair hearing where he has an opportunity to challenge and confront the evidence against him. The Congress of the United States uh, enacted the McCain Amendment, which establishes uh, that the United States may not subject anyone in our control or our custody, wherever they are being held and whatever their nationality, to any cruel, inhuman or degrading tactics, much less uh, torture. Uh, so, you know, all of those are um, our presence. And then more recently, the, the Congress and the USA Freedom Act uh, ended the NSA's program of bulk collection of our telephone uh, metadata. So all of those are precedents that, that have uh, both legal effect uh, and, I think, political effect in constraining uh, what a Trump administration could realistically do.
1: I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking Trump will end up choosing the Supreme Court justice and he'll pick the kind of person who will swing the court to the right again. And maybe these precedents and rulings will be reversed. I imagine this has occurred to you, too.
2: Absolutely and that is a concern and we have to pay very close attention to who he selects for the uh, open uh, Supreme Court slot. And if it's someone who's unacceptable, we have to fight as hard as we can to uh, to resist that appointment, I believe. but I should say the ACLU, which I will be joining doesn't take positions on the uh, appointment or confirmation of Supreme Court justices. so I'm speaking in my personal capacity there um, but I think but, but I think the broader point is, look, George Bush had a friendly Supreme Court. It was the Supreme Court that put him in office, after all. And notwithstanding the fact that they were friendly to George Bush, they ruled against him four times in the war on terror. Why? Because George Bush overplayed his hand and because the civil society mobilization against George Bush had succeeded in really framing the issue by the time it got to the court as an issue of the rule of law Versus lawlessness. President Bush on the side of lawlessness, and if that's the way the case comes to the court, whether it's a Republican court or a Democratic court, I think uh, it's likely to rule in favor of the rule of law. And the other, the other broad point I think is, look, you can't necessarily rule out the checking function of the court or of Congress simply because of its political control. It will. The, the Republican control of the Congress and of the court will be a challenge. But if Trump goes too far and if people stand up in a concerted and smart and strategic way against him, uh, I think you, you, you those branches will push back.
1: Well, I'm sure you saw the news that the day after Election Day, there was a tremendous outpouring of support for the ACLU, the biggest day in the ACLU's history of uh, getting contributions and getting new, new people signing up. So a lot of people are counting on the ACLU to stand up to what Trump might do. Citizen action, stop George W. Bush. We can stop Trump, too. David Cole, we need you and the ACLU now more than ever. Thank you for taking the lead on this, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Next up, we're still trying to understand exactly how Trump won. And for that, we turn to Gary Young. He's a columnist for The Nation and a fellow at The Nation Institute and an award-winning writer for The Guardian. He's written several books. The new one is Another Day in the Death of America. We talked about it here a couple of weeks ago. Gary, welcome back. Thanks for having me. You spent a month in Muncie, a prototypical Rust Belt city in Indiana, talking to locals about politics and their lives. We really need to understand what happened in places like Muncie on Election Day. We're told different things that Trump won because working class whites are angry about deindustrialization or that Trump won because white nationalists rebelled against a black president and his multicultural supporters, or that regular Republicans stayed loyal to their party despite reservations about their candidate, or that men didn't want a woman president. Uh, I'm sure that all of these played some part, but it would be good to know which were the most important for the people you spent a month with, Let's start with working-class anger about deindustrialization. How far do you think that goes in explaining Trump's victory in Muncie?
3: In Muncie, it goes some of the way. So, if you look at the precincts, Muncie is very, very segregated in terms of race and class. So, um, there were poor white areas, African American areas, which were also poor, but sometimes not as poor as the white working-class areas, and then. Uh, Wealthier white areas. Now, in the white working class areas, these were places that voted twice for Obama. So at least electorally, you have to say that racism is probably not a driving force um, in those areas. And what was very strange in Muncie, and I can't say to you that this was replicated elsewhere in America, was that they did split their tickets And the way they split their ticket was they voted for Trump, and then they voted Democrat down the rest of the ballot. So uh, it was very strange. So Evan Bayh won in the white working-class areas. Uh, John Gregg won. But these are kind of, you know, Indiana people standing for Senate and for for governor. But Trump won too. But here's the thing about those areas, which and these were areas that, as I said, Obama won, is that the the vote was down and then the Democrat vote was down. The Republican vote wasn't up hugely, but the Democrat vote was down. But the place where Trump did really well and where he couldn't have won Mumtree really without them was in the wealthy white areas. Those were the places where turnout was at the level uh, that it was in 2012, and the Republican margins grew significantly. And so I think, while it was true that the white working class swung to Trump, and I do think this is true nationally, it's a mistake to understand this as purely a class revolt in which the white working class deserted the Democrats and so on and so forth. So the white working class, while they did vote for Trump, were very much a junior partner in this coalition. It was mostly wealthier white people who voted for Trump. And then, you know, there were some things that I think we talked about last time that it's difficult to really explain the degree to which people really loathed couldn't, but they really did. And then trade was certainly an issue, um, as I'm sure it was in Michigan and Wisconsin and elsewhere. But in a sense, the story of the night for me seemed to be that Clinton's vote collapsed, and Trump's vote held up well enough. So in the African-American areas of Muncie, Clinton won with wide margins, but there were fewer people who turned up.
1: You have a revealing quote from a guy named Dave Ring, owner of the downtown food stand. He asked, what has capitalism done for the working man, and what was his answer?
3: He said, it's taken our jobs and ruined our infrastructure and increased our healthcare prices so they're unaffordable. He then said, if your job's good and you have good healthcare and you have retirement, then you don't understand. And that's a very small group of people. And it happens to be the group of people who are in power. And Dave was interesting because he's um, a small business owner, set up his business the year before the crash, threw everything he had into this organic food store. He voted for Bernie. He voted for Hillary but with with no passion. I met very few people who were voting for her with passion. Although to be honest, I met very few people who voted for Trump with passion either. And Dave's point was look, the Democrats have this incremental approach to all the mainstream Democrats to what we need and we need things, you know, faster and quicker, you know, with kind of we're dying out here, you know. Mm-hmm. And um in different ways, that was one of the things you heard. You know, People who were voting for Trump didn't really like him, but would say, well, maybe he'll shake things up. And there was just this sense of like, something needs to change. And so Clinton standing as a status quo candidate, standing for Obama's third term, pretty much promised that she would carry on as year 24. Well, when you're in a town where 30% of the people are living in poverty, Jobs have gone. An awful lot of hope has gone. Heroin and um, crystal meth have come in. They don't want things to carry on as they have done, even if they did vote for Obama twice. So somebody looking like they'll shake things up, kind of, you know, there is something attractive about that. But it just shouldn't be assumed that, you know, there was this stampede of racists who, you know, went to vote for Trump. It was it, it was a trickle, it wasn't a flood. I mean, Trump got a smaller percentage of the eligible vote than Ford, Kerry, Romney, McCain, and they all lost. Yeah. So it was really a collapse of the um, of the of the Democratic vote. And and one could feel that there in the fact in what people didn't say, which is that one woman in a bar, actually, one woman spoke enthusiastically about Clinton. And I'm sure there were others in town who were enthusiastic about her, but not many.
1: Trump often said the system is rigged. Did that have resonance with the people you talked to in Muncie?
3: It really did. I mean, it it did for local reasons. So the, um, the FBI is investigating Muncie City Council for accusations of dodgy contracts, you know, where the Local building manager is accused of commissioning himself, basically, to do building work, some of which is on buildings that may not have existed. So there was that kind of small town accusations of graft, and there are a range of ways in which you saw people bristling, not just of that, but but other things like that. But then on a, on things that relate more uh, more nationally. The Bernie people felt that the Hillary people had their fingers on the scales and the whole super, de- super delegate thing, and there was some sense of unfairness there. There was some sense from Republicans that the Clinton Foundation was crooked and that the Republican hierarchy, both actually locally and nationally, didn't have people's best interests at heart. And there was a range of ways in which you could, you could hear it. Nobody actually used the terms the system is rigged, but in different ways it kept coming up like the people who have the power, whoever they are, and whoever's interest they're in using it in, they're not using it in ours. And it was this undercurrent to a general sense of malaise, I thought.
1: Now, what about the thesis many of our colleagues have advanced that? What was really behind Trump's victory, what was really behind the lack of enthusiasm for Hillary, was that white men were rejecting a powerful woman, even if they didn't say it exactly that way.
3: Here's the the challenge of any monocausal identity claim is this, is that then when you pose another group next to it and say, well, how do you explain this? It all falls apart. So if 53% of white women voted against Hillary, are they too opposed to strong white women? If it was gender, then how does one explain that black men were also almost twice as likely to vote for Hillary as white women? Any kind of monocausal, identity-based question, I feel crashes at the rocks of that, apart from the broad racial question White people voted for Trump, and black people and Latino people did not. That, I think, is the only broad kind of... um, And rural people voted for Trump, and city people didn't. But I think that the gender question, there are too many variables, if one looks intersectionally, there are too many variables to make that work.
1: Yeah. Did any Trump voters tell you that Hillary's email was a decisive issue for them or a big issue?
3: Nobody said, I'm not voting for her because of her email. But often the sense that she was crooked, some said criminal, others kind of intimated, just fishy, Mm -hmm. that sense of you can't quite trust that woman, she speaks out of both sides of her mouth, that certainly, that's, that certainly came up. And to be honest, it came up with some Democrats, too.
1: And of the Trump voters that uh, you got to know in Muncie, were they interested in uh, building a wall to keep out Mexicans or stopping Muslims from entering the country at the border?
3: <clears throat> Specifically, no. But generally speaking that sense that something must be done was what they felt, And I would say this is no different to Obama people in 2008 where they just feed back the slogans to you and you say, what do you like about Obama? And they say, hope, I like hope <laughs> and change. I like change too, I think change <laughs> is good. So, you know, and uh, you'd speak to some Trump voters and they would say, well, I think he's going to make America great again, Mm. you know. I would like to see. And so they would do that. And then you would say, but do you think these jobs are ever coming back? So Muncie's lost half of its manufacturing jobs in about 15 years. And they would say, no, no, I don't think those jobs are coming back. But I think, you know, he wants to make America great again. And in my experience, not that many Americans vote on policy, really. It's, you know, broad, kind of directional, sort of tribal allegiances. And with this, there was this sense that, yeah, he wants to do something big about immigration. He doesn't just want to tinker with it, and he doesn't, you know, and he's not talking amnesty, quote-unquote. And with Muslims, yeah, he's going to kick some ass. And he doesn't really care if it's insensitive or not, he's going to do what he thinks is like to protect us. Now, nobody said those exact words, but that is how I would understand them understanding what he said.
1: You were in Muncie, Indiana. How much did Pence matter?
3: I get a sense that he, if anything, he was a motivating factor for Clinton people to turn out and vote. And actually, Muncie was in Pence's congressional district. Wow. I didn't hear Republicans speak much about Pence, you know, in any kind of warm way, or, you know, well, our boy's on the ticket, or anything like that. But I did hear Democrats, quite a few actually, say, you know what's more scary than Trump is Pence, because Pence is a movement Republican. Trump, in their view, was a bloviating gas bag But Pence was a movement Republican, and he has done damage here, you know, and they would talk about the uh, religious rights uh, amendments and so on. And so um, Democrats saw him as a very, very dangerous, dangerous person, in many ways more dangerous because he was more sought out Uh than Trump.
1: The big takeaway it seems to me from this is that it wasn't that people in Muncie went for Trump with enthusiasm and passion. it's that the the Democratic vote collapsed because of lack of passion and enthusiasm for Clinton, and the regular Republicans carried the day uh, as they have done in the past, but not with a, p- a particular particularly large margin.
3: Yeah. And that's what it felt like. And, and pouring through the kind of data from the precinct from, you know, areas that I knew, it would seem to me that, yeah, three, three things happened. The Democratic vote, it didn't collapse like a full-scale collapse, but it was deflated. Yeah. It, turnout was down and the margins were down. The Republican vote, vote more or less held. It was down a bit. The turnout was down, but the margins were up and that significant sections of the Republican base were motivated by their dislike of Clinton. Clinton's base was motivated by its hatred of Trump, but not as much, just not as much. Gary Young,
1: thanks so much for talking with us. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you. We know about the hatred of refugees spread by Trump and his supporters and his media, but there's a big rescue operation underway nationwide. Grassroots programs working to resettle refugees in all kinds of American towns and cities. For that story, we turn to Michelle Chen. She's a contributing writer at The Nation. She also writes and edits for In These Times and Dissent Magazine. And she's a radio and podcast person on Pacifica Radio's WBAI and on Dissent's Belabored podcast. She also studies history at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Michelle Chen, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Well, Muslims, of course, are the most vulnerable immigrants and refugees in Trump's America. So let's talk about Muslims for for the dark side of what can happen to Muslim refugees in America. Let's start with what happened to Chobani Yogurt and its founder, Hamdi Ulukaya.
4: Yeah, um, it's kind of an interesting story that presaged in many ways the dangers that a Trump election uh, would, would present for refugees as a whole. But um, in the months leading up to the election, as Trump was really drumming up this rabid hatred for uh, Muslim immigrants and uh, particularly um, refugees from Muslim countries that he threatened to, you know, on various uh, occasions ban or, you know, strictly vet or otherwise restrict from coming to the U.S., um, as all of that was being, uh, you know, whipped up for whatever reason, the alt-right caught wind of a story that was actually quite an endearing story about, um, a Kurdish-Turkish immigrant entrepreneur who runs the Chobani yogurt brand. Um, some people may be familiar with that. It's fairly popular. It's kind of a health food thing, and it was a pretty successful company, and, um, and he decided voluntarily to launch kind of a small scale kind of miniature, uh, Refugee Humanitarian Assistance Program Through his workforce He employs uh, several hundred Refugees from around the world um, And has made it a special initiative To try to get other employers Around the world to uh, step up and, and try to help refugees uh, Resettle in new countries In safe places And to rebuild their lives Through uh, hiring them And providing other forms of assistance So it was kind of one of those You know, do-gooder, kind of, you know, nice little pleasant human interest stories in the news. And it got picked up by uh, Breitbart and the like. And they immediately went to work assailing him, um, you know, threatening him with death threats, trying to paint him as some sort of, uh, you know, sort of secret terrorist operative, um, kind of someone who wants to sort of choke. I think they actually use the term choke, um, choke the U.S. with Muslims uh, which is kind of an interesting food metaphor when you think about it. But uh, yeah, so that that was the kind of mass hysteria that was happening even on the campaign trail. And uh, now that Trump's in office, we can expect to see that, you know, being a recurring theme uh, in his treatment of all Muslim immigrants and refugees.
1: So the first thing people might do, what I'm going to do when I leave our studio here, there's a snack bar on the ground floor and they sell Chobani yogurt. I'm going to get some on my way home. And uh, that's it. <laughs> Well, now it's time for your Minnesota Moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. Uh, On this show, we've talked before about the Somali refugee community in Minneapolis. Of course, they're Muslim. They've been targeted by the FBI as a community where young men are recruited to join the Islamic State in Syria. And Trump... In, on the last weekend of his campaign, went to Minneapolis and specifically denounced the Somali refugee community there. The, the Somali neighborhood in Minneapolis is called Cedar Riverside. It's, it's near the West Bank campus of the University of Minnesota. There's some really interesting homegrown resettlement efforts underway there. Uh, tell us about them.
4: Yeah, um, there there have been groups that have been operating uh, with and advocating for the Somali American community, um, particularly a, a generation of refugees uh, that that kind of grew up here, as as well as their children, and um, they've been doing some outreach recently to. Somali youth, uh, I think they're sort of targeting young uh, men who are teenagers or in their early 20s, and um, they suffer from a lot of economic hardship. Um, they face extreme barriers to employment, um, pretty low. Um, employment rates, and um, they they face a lot of obstacles in life. Uh, both, you know, trying to readjust to life in the United States, and also um, just trying to keep their lives on track in general. Um, this is often seen as a hard-to-reach population. Um, and interestingly, uh, some of these. They're, they're focusing on young men in particular because they tend to be more socially dislocated than even their um, uh, young women in the community um, who are often able to kind of get into school, go on to higher education for many reasons that have actually a lot to do with intersecting um social barriers facing both uh, blacks in, in, in Minnesota and, and uh, refugees and immigrants in particular. So they're starting a new job center there. It's a partnership uh, with some community groups and this workforce initiative called Emerge U.S., and they um, try to get young people in touch with employment opportunities, try to train them for work, try to connect them to school Um, and try to just sort of maintain their ties to the community and the workforce as a way of both empowering them as individuals um, and also helping the community. Uh,
1: We should uh, mention that the city of Minneapolis had a great response to Trump's arrival there uh, before the election and attack on the Somali immigrant community. Minneapolis elected America's first Somali immigrant Muslim woman to state government. We, we've talked about her on this show a couple of times, Ilhan Omar. She's going to the state legislature as a member of the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, the DFL, the first immigrant Muslim woman elected to state government in the United States, and they did it in Minneapolis. Yeah. Pulling the focus back a, a little bit here, what is the resettlement process like right now for uh, Muslims coming to the United States from, from the Middle East or other places?
4: Generally, the U.S. is one the top country for refugee resettlement um, around the world, and it's kind of quite astounding because I, I don't think most people realize how many refugees the U.S. takes in. But um, you know, by far, we have a more extensive refugee resettlement program than, say, you know, the EU does, and and we're, that's the place that we're associating with all this um, this huge influx of asylum seekers coming across the Mediterranean. Um, the U.S. refugee program is a little bit different because there's actually a pretty extensive vetting process that goes through um, before the person is allowed to resettle. Um, you know, there are also people who uh, claim, they they try to claim asylum status by uh, coming to U.S. territory first, um, but primarily the main refugee resettlement programs involve like applying from abroad and going through many, many networks you know, and waiting for months or even years to qualify, even when you have family in the U.S. So it's a pretty tough process. But when they do get here, um, there's a variety of private um, NGOs that work with refugees doing humanitarian-type activities. Um, and there are also you know, things like church groups other nonprofits that are operating, you know, alongside the federal government on resettlement, and so there's often a place that's designated for them, and they set them up with some resources and a pretty small stipend, really modest kind of um, you know resources to get started with, and from there it's pretty much they're they're on their own, uh, which you know brings a lot of trouble for some groups because they do have trouble, say, adjusting on a cultural level um, to say nothing of learning English and, you know, getting their kids up to speed in school and all those sorts of hardships. But, you know, I think now we really don't know what to expect under Trump. Um, There's actually fear that Trump may simply just cut off refugee (laughs) inflows and, and that would just sort of dramatically upend the entire program. Um, The president has an enormous amount of discretion um, when it comes to allowing uh, certain refugees in, choosing which countries to take in refugees from. Um, And it's another one of these areas where the president has really outsized executive authority. And whatever Obama and his State Department did previously, um, it's all really in Trump's hands now. Mm -hmm.
1: Michelle Chen, read her at TheNation.com. Michelle, thanks for talking with us today.
4: Thank you. To
1: start making sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.